So good morning. Today we are in part six of our sermon series on work and rest. And today we're going to look at our restlessness. Um, The restlessness that we find in Genesis 1 through 11, or 3 through 11, I guess. And also the uh, restlessness of other gods that um, in the ancient Near Eastern biblical culture, they were helping to narrate the story of life. And the purpose of looking back and thinking about these other gods and how they narrated uh, the story in scripture there is because we still, to this day, whether we are religious or secular or whatever, we still have our gods and our God, whether it's the true one or not, that narrates our story. There's like the story that we're being told from so many different uh, places, and we might not think that it affects us, and yet in the long term, we, kept he- we keep hearing these things, and there are these implications of how we treat one another and how we worship God, and how we see ourselves, how we see one another, how we see God. So we're going to be looking at restlessness today, um, and we're going to be discussing a little bit about restlessness um, in, in our small groups. So the big uh, thought for today is that restlessness of toil occurs not because of design. So it wasn't God's design that we should be in this restless state of toil. That's not his design. Rather, it happens because of our choices to disregard God. Seeking rest absent from God produces the opposite desired outcome. So we can seek rest however we want. Um, but if we're doing it again outside of the gospel or outside of it, uh, the grace and truth of Jesus and not uh, seeking rest in him, it's ultimately just going to cause more restlessness and more toil rather than redeeming work and rather than actually entering into a place of rest. So we can go hard and strive and strive and strive after entering rest, but if it's not his rest, we're not going to experience it. In fact, the opposite is going to happen. And I think that happens in a lot of our lives where we go after something so hard and yet we can do it in the wrong way that the outcome is completely opposite of what we wanted. And so we want to take that and think about that today in the story of Genesis 3 through 11. So this is how today's going to go. I'm going to read a story, and what I want you to do, I want you to imagine the story, and I want you to imagine yourself in the story. And as you're imagining yourself in the story, also think about maybe some of the themes or the concepts or the words or the phrases that come out that are still very much so uh, applicable for today. And in the midst of that, I want you to just take like 30 seconds uh, and consider some of that, and then just... Go at it with each other. Discuss the questions that I'm going to put on the screen. Don't worry about being right. This discussion group, being right is important to some degree, but the discussion group is more so to share with one another and to try to work out and imagine ourselves in the story and understand maybe what the story is trying to speak to us and what God is trying to speak to us. Um, Also, as we're doing this, let's try to uh, steer away from the temptation to talk about others and how others are restless. And how maybe my spouse, my spouse, Naomi, didn't deal with us all the time. Yes, Naomi. Um, but what about you? How do you, not other people that you don't even know, or not a general population, but how do you struggle with this? Like how, and, and share that in an appropriate way. Again, some of the, the um, things we want to consider in small group, if you're, if you're talking for the full seven minutes of each of these discussions, you're talking too much. We want to do a discussion of both like putting it out there. This isn't going to be 
a thorough, exhaustive whatever. This is just sharing little bits and pieces of what's coming to mind, what the Spirit is bringing to mind. But I also do, if you're more introverted and you feel a little bit more like scared to enter these things, I, I would ask you to you know, be courageous today and just speak um, a little something into the conversation that's around you. So let me pray, and then we'll get to reading. Uh, we'll get to the stories, and then at the end, you get to listen to me for 15 minutes woo, um, about the idea of comparing the God of Israel to the Babylonian God. And how in Genesis 1 and 2, one of the great ways to read Genesis 1 and 2 is in this uh, theological implication comparison. Where during the culture that Israel was in, in Babylon, in the exile, there were these stories of creation. And these stories of creation were saying something about who God was, how the world was, and who we are as people. And the Israelites, the people of God, were interacting with those stories. And they're like, this isn't, this isn't, no. There's some similarities, yeah. There's some of this and that and that, but the implications of what you're saying are greatly off. And then how can we consider and translate that into modern day? Because all of us here, to one degree or another, whether in small or great ways, are called to tell and show and create a better story, a more true and beautiful story that is of the gospel, that is already there than what the world around us, both the religious world and the secular world around us is speaking. So how can we be image bearers and how can we imitate God and the way that he comes into a certain time and place and uh, speaks truth and beauty and goodness? How can we do that in our own day? So we're going to talk a little bit about that on the back end of things. So let's pray. God, there will be a lot of words uh, between us today shared, um, both from um, our groups um, and from the pulpit In the midst of that, God, help us not to miss your word to us today. Whatever that word would be, uh, maybe you have a word corporately for us today. I know you have, uh, you're speaking to us as individuals too today, God. So help us to have ears to hear, um, to be able to appreciate your grace and your mercy in the midst of our own brokenness and in the midst of the brokenness that is uh, evident around us, God. We ask you to reform our minds in the midst of conversation. We ask you to even open up um, uh, new paths to truth today as we think and place ourselves in these stories. And may your word be the guiding light of our day together. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you want to, you may um, follow along in the text or you can just listen to the the stories that I'm going to read. So... As I'm reading the Tower of Babel story, most of these stories are going to be very well known, but consider these two questions and talk about these two questions in your group. Again, just seven minutes. Why would God not want humanity to succeed in anything they set out to do? And that's not a trick question. Like, actually ask that question. Try not to come come to it with assumptions or presumptions. And then the more personal question, how can the quest for fame or security actually make you restless, right? We're looking at that opposite thing, right? If we seek security outside of God, that security can actually make us more restless rather than providing true security for us. So let's consider these questions and these thoughts as we read uh, from Genesis 11. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, 
they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone and tar was used instead of mortar. Then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. In that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world and they stopped building the city. That is why the city was called Confusion or Babel. Because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. And in this way, he scattered them all over the world. One of the ways that I wrestle with that idea of fame is the fact that I want people to like me. And maybe I don't want to be famous like a movie star, but I want people to think well of me. And at times there can be this inner turmoil within myself where I care more so what people think about me than what God thinks about me. And that can often put this thing where, oh, I want to have a a good but maybe hard conversation with Tim, but I I think he's not going to like me. if I have that conversation. And so I become restless with this thing that maybe God is saying, just have a, con- I'm not telling you to change his life. I'm just telling you to have this conversation. But this, this idea of fear of man versus fear of God is something that I really struggle with at times. And that makes me restless in that kind of quest for fame. Again, not big TV fame, but in just wanting to be liked by people. So I offer that to you as part of my discussion group. So now let's turn in with uh, people that are around you. You'll have seven minutes. Discuss the two questions or anything else that stood out in the story. And uh, I'll call us all back in a couple minutes. The next story that we will be in is from Genesis 4. Again, you can either turn there or you can just listen. Uh, The story of Cain and Abel. Abel and Cain. Now, Adam had sexual relations. Let me put up the questions first. Isn't that a good place to pause? Why would God not have accepted Cain's offering? And how can jealousy or missing the mark, I put and it should be or, or missing the mark make you restless? When I say missing the mark, you can take that as sin in general, or you can just uh, take it as I set to do something and I didn't do it the way I wanted to do it. Or I set to do something and I failed at it even unintentionally. Like I just didn't, it just didn't go the way I thought it was going to go. Genesis 4. Now Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. 
Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so downcast? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. One day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. Now you are cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. Cain replied to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. The Lord replied, no, for I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anybody who might try to kill him. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I get really restless when I miss the mark on things. Um, Maybe it's being like the baby in the family and uh, having that idea that, you know, whatever I do is always right. And so when I do something that's not right, it's harder to to grapple with that. Um, but there becomes this thing where if I set out to do something and it's not perfect or it's not up to my expectation or I, I wanted to benefit somebody and it actually was a detriment to them, um, like I just want to give up on everything then because of that one thing. Like I don't want to receive grace and forgiveness if I need to be if I need to receive forgiveness if I actually did something wrong. I just want to I just want to back out take my hands off of everything and just do my own thing. You know, I want to be this wanderer, this restless wanderer. And so that's one of my things as far as thinking about this story and missing the mark that, uh, that restlessness that wants to tempt me to just like leave rather than seek God's grace and forgiveness in those places. So let's continue with these questions in your group. Seven minutes. Go at it. Okay, so the, uh, the back story here, um, just because it specifically plays into the Genesis 3 narrative. Uh, the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So as we consider Adam and Eve and the tree, uh, be considering these questions. Why would God not want our eyes opened? Why would God not want our eyes open? And second, how can hiding or improper knowledge make you restless? Again, knowledge isn't a bad thing. Improper knowledge or the seeking of knowledge as a God itself is a bad thing. So how can hiding and improper knowledge or improper knowledge, make you restless. So Genesis 3, 1 through 13. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, 
Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. There's so many great parallels between Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, like the idea of the ground being cursed uh, because of the sin that was committed. The idea of God says, uh, where are you in Genesis 3? And in Genesis 4, he says, where is your brother? And how the second thing he says is, uh, what have you done? In both cases, in both Genesis 3 and in Genesis 4, he says, what have you done? So I experience a certain amount of uh, turmoil inside when usually when I take on things and uh, hide them usually at home. So like say there's something going on that I'm just um, in angst about, whatever it is. And uh, instead of being in a place at home where I should be able with Naomi to like just talk about these things, a lot of time I want to hide them. And it's not even something like I necessarily did something wrong. It's just like there's this weight that, that comes upon. And instead of actually sharing that with people that I'm in significant relationship with, I can tend to turn inward. And I can tend to hide what's actually going on rather than actually conversing about it. And a lot of times I don't want to talk about it because I don't want a, a perspective different than my own about it to be challenged. <laughs> Dang it, Naomi, that's right. And then I have to switch my gears and maybe think broader. And yet, that's kind of part of the reason in doing all that, is to be in community even in the midst of weight that we are carrying. We always have to carry our own weight, but there's other weight that we're meant to carry in community together. Sometimes, personally, I can hide that stuff because, I mean, even being like a staff member at church, right? Everything's fine all the time. And that's a lie that I know is a lie. And especially here at Cornerstone with the people that we have here, knowing that you don't need to carry that, Justin, but yet that is still something that I'm tempted with all the time, is to hide that kind of stuff and not share it among significant relationships that I have. 
So let's turn into our groups and let's discuss the questions on the screen. So we just spent some time trying to put ourselves into those stories of Genesis 3 and 4 and 11 and consider some of that stuff. And how we are, it tends to be that humanity is a restless people, but it wasn't necessarily created like that. God didn't create out of turmoil and toil and all of that. He created something uh, out of a place of peace and out of a place of abundance. But what I want us to do is I want us to imagine that uh, we are the person Ezra. If that person needs to be male or female, you can do whatever you want with that. And we're going to be in Babylon. So where, when the exile happened, where did Israel go? They went to Babylon. It's often thought that um, part of uh, the Old Testament scriptures in its final form, because this book, these, the word of God didn't just drop out of the heavens and it was there. It was actually created in the sovereignty of God through many, many, many years. There was oral stories. There was written stories. There was the stuff that God delivered to Moses. But as it is now, it didn't like just happen. It didn't just happen. The sovereignty of God created this, um, uh, this art piece uh, that is true and beautiful and also shows us how restless humanity is um, over time. And that's something, you know, that's actually something that I wrestled with probably 10 years ago a lot, being like, what? But as I thought about it, there's actually something a lot more um, um, glorious about the scriptures in that way, but that's a talk for another time. That being said, it's thought that uh, some of the compilation of Genesis happened during the Babylonian exile. That, and we talked about this in Jeremiah, that because of the exile, God's people wanted needed to preserve because their hometown was being trashed like completely destroyed their temple, their place of worship, and all of that. And so what they wanted to do is that they needed to take these stories that they had both in oral culture and uh, in written culture, and they needed to put them together. And as they were putting them together, there was uh, the sovereignty of God also editing through them, where the reason that they were telling these true stories or the story about that wasn't just uh, a lot of uh, the Old Testament is history, but not all of it is history. Some of it is doing something else. Sometimes it's a combination of history with theological implication narrative. What the heck do you mean by that? What I mean is that sometimes we get wrapped up um, and we don't actually hear what the story's saying. That we, you know, we kind of dissect the story, and I love dissecting the story, but we're not listening to what it's saying. And so what I want us to imagine is uh, that we're in Babylon, and we're this person, Ezra, and we're down by the canal where uh, the Israelites wash their clothes, and there's other people there. There's other Babylonians there that are washing their clothes. There's people that have a Canaanite heritage that have their own stories and their own uh, um, uh, creation myths, so to speak. And then there's these uh, Sumerians who is even older than uh, Babylon that the Babylonians actually conquered at one point. And they have their stories too. So I want you to imagine us that we're Ezra down washing our clothes. And then we start to hear these other stories, these creation stories. And what are the theological implications of them? Meaning, what are they saying about how the world was made and who humans are? And ultimately who God is. Because Ezra, we as Ezra would have been there and been like, there's some similarities here. You know, all of these stories kind of talk about the dark 
and the deep and how there were these waters on earth originally and there was the separation of the waters below from the waters above and that there was light before there was the sun and the moon. There's some common language. There's some similarities in this. But then there's some not similarities in this. So I want to tell you kind of a a hodgepodge, if you will, because uh, especially the pagan nations, once one pagan nation uh, ruled another pagan nation, they would tend to take their stories and make them their own stories, but put their God in, in the place to make their God the God that was ruling over all. And it's really interesting because of all the nations that have ever been conquered, Israel is still the only one that exists, right? All the other nations that have been conquered by other nations eventually are died out. Where Israel, because of God's grace, was going to preserve a remnant. And that the sacred scriptures continued through that. So let's picture ourselves as Ezra washing our, our undies, our socks, down there listening to these stories. And so I want to tell you uh, part of a story from uh, the Sumerian Babylonian uh, creation stories. There's going to be words here that I'm going to mispronounce. Just telling you right now. So Tamat. Tamat. Tamat was the primordial goddess of the waters of the deep. She held a type of cosmic queenship over everything. She was an agent of chaos that would war against even the other gods that she created. One day, Marduk comes along and is placed as the head of the other gods in the pantheon in order, he's placed there in order to fight and hopefully conquer Tamat. Marduk is the god of Babylon. Tamat embodies herself prepping for this war as a serpent or as a dragon, in other languages as Leviathan, and goes into Theomachi, which is God at war the war of the gods. And she does this against Marduk. At one part, uh, Marduk uses his power over the winds and uh, over the atmosphere, and he actually freezes the serpent in the air, and he causes this great wind to come and fill her, opening her mouth and suspending her in the middle of the air. And then what he does as, as the serpent is suspended there, he shoots his arrows into her mouth that goes and pierces her heart and kills her. And he is victorious. Her serpentine body is laying on the ground. And Marduk goes with his hands and grabs uh, her lower jaw and her upper jaw and tears her in half. And with these two halves, he throws one of the halves up into the sky and creates the heavens as we know it. The Milky Way is her tail. The arch of her back is the arch of heaven. Her ribs make the arch of heaven. He takes the other part of her and throws it on the ground and creates the earth as we know it. With her eyes being the source of the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers that are crying in pain and in sorrow. Now, what's the theological implications of this story from Babylon? It's that war was there at our beginning. And no wonder the world is at war, right? Because the gods created it out of competition and hierarchy and violence. And if that's the DNA of our world, of the cosmos, then that's how you have to play in order to live in this world. That is how you get by. 
is by the idea of war being how the world was made, cosmology. So Ezra hears this, and he hears some similar thing. Well, there's a dra- there's a serpent. I, that's part of our story. Uh, and there's this deep water and the separation. I get that. But there wasn't all these other gods that were kind of fighting for power at the beginning. There was this one god, Yahweh, El. And he was the god above all gods from the beginning, so much so that no one even compares to him. And he didn't create out of the spoils of war. He created out of his abundant goodness. He created with what? Not war, but with what? Word. He spoke things into creation and their life and breath and being was found in his essence. Him releasing them to be what they were meant to be. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a great story, Ezra. Let me tell you the second part of the story as the Babylonian uh, laundry man. So the earth is now created. So Marduk, our God, conquered Tamat, killed that serpent, ripped her apart, created heaven and earth. Now the earth needs to be tended. We need caretakers for the earth. So the gods decide to make humans. Okay? The gods decide to make humans. How are we going to make humans? Well, in a lot of ancient Near Eastern culture, clay or dirt was a part of the creation of man and woman. So the gods are like, you know what? Let's take some dirt from the earth, but let's mix it with blood to create these humans. And you know what? We need these humans because we need some kind of slaves to help tend this thing, to do the work for us so that we don't have to do any work for them to kind of Um, you know, we can be their taskmaster and they can do things so we can just sit back and enjoy leisure all the days of our God lives. So how are we going to get blood though? Well, remember Tamat's son? No, because I didn't mention him. Well, Tamat had a son whose name was Kingu and he was next in line before Marduk took over. Let's kill him. And out of that God's blood, we'll take that blood and we'll mix it with the dirt and then we'll create human beings out of that to be our slaves. To be the ones that we can have uh, uh, dominion and authority over that can uh, feed us the things that we need to be fed, that can take care of things so we can just back off, that we don't have to work. The Babylonian gods want slaves to toil in order that they can have leisure. Ezra interjects. And acknowledges the clay element, the dirt element. Yeah, I see that. But says it's not the blood from some kind of oppressive, murderous plot that created humans. It was God who formed humans. And what did he use? It wasn't blood that he used to form humans. He used breath. He used breath. And so there's this idea of dirt and violent, unjust blood versus dirt and the breath of God. And furthermore, Ezra says, you know what? God didn't make humans to toil in slavery either. He created them in his image, both male and female, to rule and have dominion and have communion with him, to be participants in the flourishing of all things on the earth. Not as slaves to do whatever his will is. And so there's this uh, 
kind of combination of things that are kind of similar and kind of different and definitely similar and definitely different. And then there's these, these uh, reasons and these uh, motivations behind it that the Babylonian era would have used as far as to oppress people and elevate the priesthood of the, the Babylonian priests to such a degree, like, you better not tick us off because we're the only ones that are in good standing with God. And there was such a hierarchy system there of, you know, who was in and who was out, and you better not do this or better not do that. And it's not that rules or laws or commands or Torah are bad, right? But the reason that God gave us his word and gave us his commands was not so that we could be slaves, but so that we could actually be free. He gave us those things as commands and as a way of his heart to uh, release freedom within us, to not go our own way, to not partake in the ideas of jealousy and let that come and grip us, that we actually end up being this restless people that goes after what we want, how we want it. Because his love towards us comes with quote-unquote restrictions, and yet those restrictions are made to help us flourish, not to oppress us. But yet compared this God who is uh, almighty and loving and kind with this other God or gods that is part of this uh, system of violence, that is part of this, this is how the world is, so why wouldn't we war against each other when we don't agree? Why wouldn't we try to grab for power and authority, whether it's in our own personal relationships or in a nation, why wouldn't we do those things? And that's because that's the story we've been fed. And the question is, what story are we as the people of God actually going to believe? And what story are we actually going to seek after? Do we even know that story of God? Or there's so many other stories right now that uh, are kind of complicating things um, and making them kind of chaotic and making them not clear. And we're not necessarily in the story of truth and beauty that God has given us that shows us, man, does it ever show us our restlessness? Does it ever show us our toil and our sin? And are we willing to engage that, but also engage the grace and the mercy and the loving kindness of our God? You know, there is war that God goes uh, against in the scriptures. It's just there. But his war is always for the purpose in his loving kindness and justice. It's not to try to elevate himself above the people necessarily. He will say, I am the only God and you shall have no other gods before me. But his warring is fighting for his creation ultimately. And yes, there is blood in the story of scripture, right? But this blood isn't in some kind of act from God that is uh, filled with violence as far as um, I'm going to destroy all of you. The main point of blood in the story of scripture is the blood of Christ and how we see Jesus willingly going to the cross at the hands of sinful men and suffering because of he knows the Father's love and he knows the idea of this um, redemption is going to cost something. It's going to cost God his own life. And yes, there is the word that has come and dwelt among us, God himself, Jesus, the tabernacled among us and made redemption possible, that he came to us. Could have just wiped us out, and he hasn't. And there is the breath of God, the spirit of God, that as we repent and believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins, that we are born again. There is the breath of God there. 
And so in our culture that is telling so many stories even right now, we need to be a people that realize um, and actually know the story that God is speaking to us and not get it confused with other, and of course we're going to get it confused, but are we seeking after the heart of uh, God through the scriptures? Are we knowing our story so much and so deeply that as we converse in coffee shops now with people and we hear these theological implications about how they might be viewing the world or uh, seeing the world, that we can in grace be like, yeah, I see what you mean there and there and there. But then can we also interject something that is completely different and countercultural and true and beautiful, a better story? a more true story, and use the language of now. God used his language back, or the people's language back then to communicate these things, and he's doing it now, and the truths transcend, right? So it's not like, well, that was back then, and we don't have to, no. We need to know this story. We need to know this core. We need to know all of these implications so that they can be in us, and that's so that we can then take them to the world now and create and show and produce a better story. In Genesis 3, um, we have what's called a proto-evangelium. Proto-evangelium. I don't know why I want to be like Mario or Luigi, like an Italian person when I say that. It's not an Italian word. But it's called the first gospel. And that's when God is uh, cursing the serpent. He says, God will put enmity between the serpent and the woman and between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. The woman's offspring shall crush the serpent's head, and the serpent shall bruise his heel. And we come to know this in the person of Jesus Christ, right? That Jesus was bit by the serpent, quote-unquote. Because he was up there on the cross, that, the person that was sinless became what? Sin. It was like he took the poison within himself that was not his poison, that was our poison, it was the poison of, of, of humanity broken. And on the cross, through the love of God, sacrificed himself, not saying a mumbling word, so that we might actually have life on the other side of his resurrection, that we might actually experience that forgiveness. And this wasn't like Jesus' idea and then God's idea was over here. As we want to also say that there's two different gods in the Old Testament and New Testament. This was God the Father, Yahweh of Israel's plan all along. And the redemption of of humanity and ultimately of the world and cosmos is found in Jesus Christ. His loss, his death was actually victory because it was the love of God at work. And in the unseen realm, the cross of Christ disarmed rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. He defeated and crushed the head of the serpent. And through the forgiveness of sins, the word speaks again to create us again. And the word of God, Jesus, is not dead, but was raised to life, being the Lord above all lords. And so as we come to the communion table today, let's remember the victory. Let's remember that as we walk there, we're confessing our restlessness. We're going to the table being like, I toil. I am restless. I have sin." But then as we're also going to the table, we're not only declaring that with our bodies and with our words, but we're also recognizing our need for the forgiveness and we're proclaiming the work and the victory of Jesus over sin, death, and the grave.
And that is something that is both deeply uh, real and yet hoped for, right? Because we look around at the wars that are around us. We look around at the death that is around us. We look around at the sin that is around us. And we're like, really? Was Jesus really victorious? And in faith, we say yes. And we realize that we are part of the problem and that God loves us so much that he's not just going to wipe stuff out. But it's because of his loving kindness that he is patient. And we look forward to all things new. We proclaim his death until he comes again. So worship team, you can come up. So I hope today two things. I hope um, in your small groups you got to interact with scripture and with one another in maybe a way that you're not used to. A lot of times stories, especially in the Old Testament, aren't answerable because I think um, that God and the writers of scripture wanted us to actually talk about them rather than being A plus B equals C. I also hope today that um, even in feeling the weight of our world and, and of these different creation narratives that are going on around us, about what is the state of us. Were we created out of chaos or was there chaos there that was actually spoken over and ordered and put together beautifully? And am I just somebody that is made to slave and toil uh, in my job all the time or is there something else going on? Do I actually have this breath of God in me? And am I believing in the work of creation and redemption and living life in good work rather than in toil, seeking that out and receiving grace where I need to? And I also hope that comparison between uh, the Babylon and Israel gives you an idea just of the fact like God wants to equip his people again to show and tell better and more true stories than what's out there. And that doesn't have to be, sure, that can be, you can do uh, video projects and stuff like I like to do. But that's just in conversations, right? These oral storytelling moments that we see. It doesn't have to be some big, huge thing. It's just like, well, no, this is what I know of God and that I believe is true. And we live in a pluralistic society that has multiple different stories. And we need to be willing to engage those stories, to listen to them. What's the commonality? But also, what is the difference? What is the truth of Jesus and of the Father, Son, and Spirit in the midst of those? So as we walk to the table, uh, Laura and Naomi are going to be serving. I give you this passage from Isaiah 27 that talks about God's victory and also about his peace. So at that time, God will unsheath his sword, his merciless, massive, and mighty sword. He'll punish the serpent of chaos and terror, Leviathan, as it flees. The serpent Leviathan thrashes in flight. He'll kill that old dragon that lives in the sea. At the same time, a fine vineyard will appear. And that's something to sing about. I, God, tend it. I keep it well watered. I keep careful watch over it so that no one can damage it. I'm not angry. I care. Even if it gives me thistles and thorn bushes, I'll just pull them out and burn them up. Let that vine cling to me for safety. Let it find a good and whole life with me. Let it hold on for a good and whole life. So brothers and sisters, a cornerstone as you go to the table, remember that we're confessing our brokenness as we step towards it. 
And part of that walk from your chair to there is that confession. That I need grace and I need forgiveness. But then as we take and remember the blood of Jesus, the body of Jesus broken, we're also proclaiming his death and resurrection and his victory. And we might not always feel it. And the stuff around us and our circumstances might be telling us something different, but that's what it means to walk in faith. It doesn't mean that we don't cry. It doesn't mean that we don't hurt. It doesn't mean any of that. It means that we do all of those things in the means that we do all of those things in the grace of God rather than by ourselves, hiding or lonesome. And we do those things together. So we sing here at Cornerstone. If you're new, we go over, take a piece, remember Jesus, dip it in the juice and partake and continue to sing and worship. If you feel like you need prayer during communion time too, just ask somebody next to you. Hey, could you pray for me over this? There's this junk that's going on right now. You know, this table is about us and God, not me and God. Not you and God, but us and God. So let's uh, stand and worship.